Association's Write and Reply podcast. I am one of your co-hosts, Xander Van Aspern. And I'm the other guy, Jacob. And we have something different this episode. We're actually not going to be, as usual, talking for half an hour plus. This time we have a bit of a collaboration with The Observer. As this time, Amy Look from The Observer has done a great interview with Professor Bu on the political and economic history of China's trade policy and what China's response to AUKUS, A-U-K-U-S, the kind of alliance we were talking about before, uh, might actually be, and the ramifications for trade policy. So big shout out to The Observer and to Amy Look for this. Uh, Very good, and we will kind of play this interview for you. AUKUS is the flashy new trade deal established between Australia, the UK, and US on September 15th, 2021. It promises to not only deliver UK and US-funded nuclear-powered submarines to the Australian coasts, but is a multifaceted deal that has remodeled diplomatic relations between the West and nations in the Asia-Pacific region. Some sources, such as The Economist and Bloomberg, have flagged the deal as the West's attempt to dampen China's significant and growing economic and political power. The Observer's External Affairs branch brings you an interview with Professor Nalene Bu of Queen's University Smith School of Business, who has done immense research in the field of international business in the Asia-Pacific region. The interview focuses on the tumultuous political and economic history of China's trade policy, and if we could possibly anticipate China's response to AUKUS. Thank you so much, Professor Bu, for meeting with me today. I just have a few questions. How do you anticipate that AUKUS will rattle China's dominant presence in the South Asian seas, if at all? Okay. Uh, well, first of all, I just want to make a small correction. It's the South China Sea. It's not South Asia Sea. That's the area that's known for as South China Sea, but that's okay. Um, yeah, the, uh, yeah. So, um, yeah. So it is interesting that you know you you phrase, phrase it as a China's dominance in the South China Sea. Um, I would say maybe not saying dominance. Maybe China's getting a slight uphand, and so dominance seems sounds like so ominous. I I, I think China may get a uh, sort of a little bit of uphand. Um, and uh, so it, uh, so this, well, so let's first of all understand why China seems to be getting up hand in the South China Sea. Um, I think the reason is not because of China's raw military power. It really cannot compare with the United States if you are measuring by, you know, the number of uh, Navy vessels, the number of fighter jets, number of aircraft carriers, uh, China's uh, Aircraft carrier numbers is like a baby numbers, right? Compared to the United States, and so far China's military spending uh, compared to the United States, uh, China I think uh, spent about one third of the United States in terms of military defense uh, industry. So um, in terms of raw military power, China has no comparison. What is giving China the edge? I think are two things. One is that simply because it is in China's neighborhood, right? Oh, well, the point of this is South China Sea, that itself give it away, right? A little bit hint because it is in China's neighborhood. Um, so it is easier for, to, for China to project its power. Um, 
And uh, so that's one reason it's simply easier. It's just right beside China. The second reason I think is because China has been using sort of very unconventional power uh, in the sense that they deploy um, sort of armed uh, the fishing vessels in the South China Sea to, to sort of uh, fishing. Of course, first of all, they fish. And but sometimes they actually occupy some of the unmanned island. And uh, so those fishing vessels are armed, uh, but yet they are fishing vessels. And uh, so, um, so this is what people Westerners, I think call this uh, China's maritime militia. And I think that's maybe just what it is, right? It's armed, but yet they are fishing vessels. So it's very hard for countries like the United States to deal with those fishing vessels. You know, large Navy ship, are you gonna ram the fishing vessels? And the fishing vessels will be, you know, destroyed and people will die. So it just doesn't seem right. So this is very hard to deal with. So um, so that's what, you know, as you described the, the ARCUS deal, uh, the ARCUS is giving the Australia a way to build a nuclear submarine, uh, which a nuclear powered submarine. Uh, so um, I don't know how many they are talking about building, but anyway, uh, I think maybe should I should have studied the stats, but I I don't really recall exact numbers. But uh, this will take a number of years. Uh, but even that was to were to happen, uh, the nuclear submarines, um, it doesn't change the formula why China is is uh, having an upper hand, like being the geographically close to the region. And secondly, using the military, uh, the so-called uh, uh, China's uh, maritime militia. So that doesn't really change that. So it will add to the um, so US uh, military dominance in terms of vessels, right? Uh, that will add to it because Australia is clearly a US ally. Um, but that, that said, but it doesn't really change that formula. Uh, so, so yeah, I, and, uh, but at the same time, it carries a lot of cost um, because so far, you know, the Chinese stance on the nuclear weapon, um, nuclear arsenal, is that China is going to uh, keep only enough uh, nuclear arsenal to have enough deterrence against attack. And uh, also the rule of engagement for China was to, uh, China will only use nuclear weapons if they are hit by nuclear weapon, nuclear uh, bombs. Um, so with this move, with uh, enabling Australia to have nuclear-powered um, um, submarine, now itself is not really not a nuclear weapon. It's just nuclear-powered submarine. But those, you know, at least from a Chinese perspective, those uh, power, those uh, what fuels nuclear nuclear submarine, the uranium involved, it's enriched to such, such level that that technology can easily be used to build a nuclear bomb. So from a Chinese point of view, this is, uh, you know, the, you know, you enable Australia to also have a nuclear weapon. Australia was, you know, is so far not a nuclear power. Uh, so would that encourage China to further build up its nuclear arsenal? Right now, you, China's nuclear arsenal, I think, you know, the standard stats is always China has about 200 warheads. But yet some people said, well, maybe China probably already have about 450 warheads or something like this. And, uh, but some people say, well, maybe even higher, but at least some, most of people's estimate is China's nuclear warhead is way below 1,000. 
And the United States has 6,000 warheads. And so if you, because of this deal, if it encouraged or encouraged uh, China to start to increase its nuclear arsenal, then it is very dangerous. So I said, you know, on the one hand, it doesn't really change the formula in, in, the, in the, the ocean, I would say in the ground, but it's not ground, it's in the ocean, because China's dominance is not because China has more weapons, right? China's, because it's geographically, China has an upper hand, also China uses unconventional method to try to achieve certain level of upper hands. But, so that doesn't solve the problem, but yet it carries such a high cost. The cost is that China is going to maybe thinking about increasing nuclear arsenal. And also China might change the, the rule of engagement and uh, you know, to the point where they said, well, you know, it's not about we get hit, then we are going to use our nuclear weapon. It may be that uh, when China gets uh, a sense that a nuclear weapon is on its way to China, it's going to launch. And that is a very dangerous thing to do because if you start to do that, you know, you can get false alarm, right? People are not sending you nuclear weapons, something happened and you start to launch and then mistake will happen. Then of course, the whole world will be embroiled in a nuclear war. And so I would say that uh, this deal, it doesn't solve the problem. And, but yet it carries risks and that risk is, is scary, really scary. Thank you so much, Professor. Um, that was extremely insightful, um, especially how it will add to U.S. military dominance, but also then like encourage China to build up a nuclear arsenal yeah. and military strategy. Um, that's yeah. extremely fascinating. Yeah. Um, from a yeah. more, oh, go ahead. Sorry. So, you know, so far, I mean, the world has been doing a good job. You know, despite all the problems, I always feel like the the, the whole world has been doing a good job in achieving some kind of nuclear disarmament. You know, in a gradual way. Uh, U.S. and the United States and the Russia uh, is, you know, agreeing to certain level of tempering it down. And right now, uh, Russia, I think, is the largest country in terms of nuclear arsenal. And United States is second. Uh, China the fourth. And uh, in between, I think it's France. You know, France is probably number three. So China is way below in, in compared to U.S. U.S. I, I mentioned, I think, of about six nuclear warheads and China is about less than 1,000, who knows how many, uh, but mm -hmm. less than 1,000 and Russia has more. So, uh, but it's been at least Russia and United States has been discussing and trying to, you know, achieve nuclear disarmament. This is a way out of hand. But, you know, this deal, it might take all that away, the achievement away, and that just worried me so much. Yeah, yeah, that's completely understandable um, how so many more tensions can uh, can yeah. come up because of this uh, this one deal. Um, but from more of an economic standpoint now, um, how would you describe China's stance on AUKUS um, in terms of how it may impact the country's economic standpoint? Okay, um, I would say it doesn't necessarily directly affect its economy per se, right? You know, it's, okay. it's a, just another deal somebody bought nuclear uh, submarine, uh, but I think it would have indirect, it could have indirect impact, I think in several ways. One is I think it's a probably negatively impact China's economy in the sense that if China were truly trying to engage in an arms race with the West, then it will impact its economy. You know, during the Mao's era, um, China's military spending during Mao's crazy Mao era, uh, it was about 
over 5% of the GDP. Some say, I, I think it's 5.5, but I think I'm not exactly sure. I think it's over 5% GDP. So China, during the Maya, I think that we mentioned that in class, <laughs> I don't know if I'm allowed to say this, that uh, when Mao died, China, the population, I think about 85% of the population live below the abject poverty. That's a dollar a day by the World uh, Bank standard. But yet China spending about five at least 5% of GDP on its military, including uh, experiment with nuclear bomb, building all kinds of conventional forces. So in China, China then, you know, during Mao's era is more like, uh, you know, I can imagine North Korea right now. Uh, people are starving, but China's built a huge military uh, force uh, for, for what? <laughs> what's, what's the point, right? Um, so, you know, if China would go back to that, era of xenophobia starting to engage in arms race, then it will certainly affect its economy. And, uh, you know, I hope the Chinese leadership will uh, learn the lesson of uh, the old Soviet Union, right? Soviet Union um, was engaged in an arms race with the West and it really destroyed its economy. So I hope the wiser heads will prevail in China not to do that. It, it doesn't really uh, make any sense to do so. So in that sense, if they do that, that will certainly negatively impact the economy. Uh, but at the same time, I also see some positive sign in a sense that um, because of that deal, it somehow alarmed the Chinese government uh, to understand its um, maybe its own diplomatic failure in recent years. Um, it has not won many friends. Um, so right after that um, uh, that deal, Arcus deal was announced. I think on the same day or a couple of days later, uh, China uh, announced that it's going to apply to join the CPTPP, uh, or, or, yeah, CPTPP in the Pacific region. And uh, so interestingly, that uh, trade pack, uh, CPTPP, uh, was initially led by the United States to constrain China's economic power in the region. Uh, because China uh, it was and actually is the largest trading partners of all those Asian countries involved, every one of the Asian countries, including Australia, China's largest trading partner. So United States was, you know, at the time was uh, leading this CPTPP trade uh, pact to exclude China, right? That was the intention. But of course, then Donald Trump became the pre president of the United States. And the first day uh, he did, what, first thing he did was to uh, withdraw the United States from the CPTPP. Um, but, you know, after the, China has been signaled, sort of hinting at, the, at certain interest in CPTPP to be joining with the, you know, Asia countries, Asia Pacific country, including Canada, actually, Canada. Um, is also a Pacific nation uh, to be in the same trade pack. But China, I think right after that deal, China actually formally submitted its application to want to join the CPTPP. Uh, and at the same time in the region, also there's another agreement, so ASEAN uh, trade, free trade agreement, free trade region area. It's, uh, uh, it's called the RCEP. RCEP. It's a regional comprehensive economic pack, I think. <laughs> and those acronyms confused me quite a bit, but I think RCEP, uh, which was, uh, is, is led by China, and so that including all the Asian countries, plus 
um, plus Australia, New Zealand. I hope I'm not missing any country, all the Asian countries, uh, plus Australia, New Zealand. It doesn't include in Canada, that particular one. Uh, doesn't include the United States. Um, so this agreement was led by China. And so uh, China has been pushing to want this uh, particular trade uh, pact to be in, uh, to be active very soon. And so it is scheduled to be in act, uh, enforced in uh, starting next year, January 1st. Um, I saw also China starting to, uh, you know, wanting to join something called uh, 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 the Digital Economy Partnership Agreement. That's very recent. Uh, it's called the DEPA. <laughs> DEPA. And Canada is part, uh, Canada, wait a second. Canada is not part of it. Canada also signaled it is going to join. So uh, you can see more initiatives from China in trying to be involved economically with other nations. Um, and uh, China seemed to also signal that they, it is interested in improved relationship with Europe. Uh, so if that leads to China's uh, being a bit more conscious of its own behavior in the economic sphere that actually turned many people off, um, so then it might be doing some good for the Chinese economy uh, to be more connected with the rest of the world. I think I'm hoping for that outcome, right? Uh, but I don't know which will happen, which is the sort of a more dominant uh, you know, outcome of that AUKUS deal. It's hard to say right now. Thank you so much. It was interesting that you touched on um, their diplomatic struggles in recent years um, and like how trade deals have been used to contain China's power by the West. I found that quite interesting. Um, and also the alternative trade deals in the region um, and um, how they're trying to kind of improve their relationships with Europe um, and becoming more aware of their behavior in an economic sense. Um, you kind of touched on it, but would you be able to explain a little bit um, further how China um, has reacted to potentially unfavorable Western alliances in the past? Um, and do you anticipate um, that they would respond in a similar way to AUKUS or how um, you think that they will respond to AUKUS um, in a yeah. more broader sense? Yeah. So. Um, yeah, the, the sort of the negative impact of the Western alliance. And in that sense, you know, China is in familiar territory. Um, and uh, so uh, historically about eight, you know, I think about 19th century, uh, 1839, I hope I get the date right, around that period of time, uh, China certainly had a taste of the negative impact of the Western alliances. Um, so China fought a war against the British, the uh, Great Britain, uh, it's called Opium War, has something to do with that you, uh, British was trying to trade opium, uh, to imp export opium to China. And uh, because Great Britain had a trade deficit with China, uh, because they bought a lot of Chinese tea, Chinese silk, uh, other Chinese artifact. And uh, so Chinese are not buying enough from uh, the British. Uh, so finally, the British found a way to erase its trade imbalance with China. That was to export opium uh, that's planted in India. It's a colony to China. And uh, so many Chinese people really got hooked up by the opium. Um, so the, the Chinese at the time, the emperor of China wanted to ban the opium trade to China. So, but. In the, you know, but somehow the outcome was the ignited war against the British. 
Um, so this war, the outcome was not very favorable for China. China lost badly uh, because China did not have, uh, you know, did not industrialize, and uh, the firepower cannot compare with the uh, with the British and with the West. Um, despite the fact that China was a large nation and had a, such a long history, uh, it, it considered itself had such a sophisticated culture, but it was not the war. Uh, it was a bad outcome for China. So as a result, China actually had to pay a lot of money to as a compensation for starting that war because they throw a lot of opium into the ocean, something like this. And uh, so, and also uh, had to cede Hong Kong to the British. So the Hong Kong issue, that's how it got started. Um, and also uh, China had to open some treaty ports, including my hometown of Shanghai to uh, Western power. And so eventually China, especially you know, I know Shanghai a little bit better. In Shanghai was carved up by Western nations and including the British and Americans and French. Um, so Shanghai, the, the, uh, the Western countries as part of the treaty, uh, Western countries can go to Shanghai and uh, uh, they can carve up a Zoom in Shanghai and that Zoom became a sort of a pseudo territory of a certain particular country. Uh, in that particular Zoom, uh, China's Chinese law does not apply. The Western uh, law apply in that region. Uh, so, so yeah, in Shanghai, we have one area in Shanghai looks like London today. If you go to see China, Shanghai looks absolutely like London. That's sort of the financial district. And then there's a, one district that is looking like uh, French, uh, fr France. And uh, very, it, even today, it's got a very nice pastry in that area. So that's the legacy of the uh, colonial uh, influence in China. Um, so now I'm talking about the beautiful buildings and uh, French pastry, but of course, during that day, those, those days, that was not experienced. And now I'm talking as if this is uh, such a quaint experience, but no, it was not a good experience for the Chinese people. Such humiliation. And also, you know, um, the, the, there was stories about, uh, there's a science in a park in Shanghai that says, uh, dogs or Chinese are not allowed. And uh, so now some people now these days say, uh, saying that those signs really did not exist. It's somehow, it's urban legend, but whatever it is, whether it's true or not, uh, this is in, you know, imprinted in the Chinese mind. And uh, so this idea that China being a victim of aggression by Western alliances, uh, it was really um, taught in Chinese schools uh, it really, uh, so the, the dominant narrative of history in a, um, by, on, you know, uh, on the part of a Chinese, Chinese uh, people and the Chinese government. And uh, it, you know, it's really interesting. It served as a sort of a, a, a form of legitimacy for the Chinese government, because the idea is that, uh, well, in the 18th century, China was weak, and that's why Chinese people got humiliated by the Western country. Now we are building a strong economy, a strong nation, and uh, we, this, we, we don't have to suffer again. Uh, so that serves as a galvanizing force that motivates Chinese people, but it also served as a form of legitimacy for its government. Because, you know, really like it or not, the current government of China delivered economically for the Chinese people. So that... Uh, so that axio is, is really a, a sort of signal to Chinese people, here we go again. 
uh, this idea that uh, Western countries are going to uh, trying to um, um, try to bring China to its knee. This happened again. This is at least the Chinese narrative. Um, so, so in that sense, um, I worry about that because uh, if that's the narrative, that's the way of thinking, then there's no issue. It's not about you know, economic competition that, you know, the, this great power competition, China and the United States, uh, for a while it was about trade wars, right? The trade deals. And uh, so if that's the competition, then I said, okay, fine. You know, this is because economic transaction, there's always compromises. You know, it's about, you know, if are we trying to negotiate a deal with, I buy something from you. Um, we can always say, okay, I want to pay this price. You say, no, 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 that's not good enough. We can negotiate a back and forth. Eventually we can negotiate, get a deal because I want something from you. You want something from me. Um, so this is different. But with the August deal, it might signal a period where, where the competition is no longer just about economic competition. It is about life and death. It's about fighting the enemy. And if that is really the case, then I would say it is truly, truly dangerous. Because in, in the sense of life and death, there's no compromise. You live or I, I live, right? And so if that's how it's framed in a relationship, uh, that is absolutely scary, absolutely scary. And honestly, um, you know, not just about this deal, but I also the rhetoric that I currently hear in the West, uh, it worries me a great deal in the sense that, I, you know, I for all those times, I know the Pacific area, it's never really safe. It's always, you know, I'm not just not safe. There's always issues in the, you know, territory disputes among the neighbors. Um, but I never thought a real war would happen. It's all bickering. It's sometimes just a, a gamesmanship. Uh, but right now, I truly worry about a war. This is the first time in my life I worry about a war in the Pacific. And if that war to, is to start, this is a nuclear war. And uh, we are going to we are all going to be part of it, you know. Even though our distance away from it, uh, we are going to be part of it. Uh, that is very, very, truly, truly, very scary. Um, yeah. So yeah. So I, I well, I guess I'm not, not really direct answer your question. So I don't think China will react very um, gently to that sense of this is a Western alliance against China, uh, because it to the Chinese this is. 19th century, here we go again. Um, so, you know, if the United States were to think that, well, because of this August deal, you will scare China enough that it will bring China to subordination, I don't think so. Uh, you know, the fact that it's China militarily still cannot compete, compare with the United States, right? It's still a weaker nation in terms of military, but it doesn't mean that China will say, okay, we, we're going to pack up and we're not going to do anything in the Pacific. That's not going to happen. So, uh, you know, actually, so, you know, but in actual war, who is going to prevail? It's hard to say, right? You know, as you see from recent events in Afghanistan, you know, the superior military power doesn't necessarily mean victory. It, it could be very costly. And I, I'm afraid that we, like it or not, even in Canada, we are all part of it. And uh, of course, we are U.S. allies, right? Uh, so, yeah, scary, very scary time. <laughs> 
Well, I, I can't really reiterate how helpful weaving together all of those like historical and political influences to China's current day strategy is. Um, hearing about first um, how China succeeded to Hong Kong and or succeeded Hong Kong and um, their whole history, and then about Western colonial influence on China, especially in Shanghai, the century of humiliation, um, and like the idea that Western countries are once again suppressing China, um, and then the whole broader historical, economic, and political background of AUKUS itself, um, how um, it's going to add to the U.S. military dominance in terms of vessels for the West, but also encourage China to build up nuclear arsenal military strategy, um, and how usually China only keeps enough nuclear vessels to have enough deterrence for attack, but now um, that the West has made moves, um, they are going to potentially um, yeah. uh, try to get more nuclear vessels um, and how um, also in history, uh, China has been commonly taught um, as a victim of Western aggression yeah. and kind of the dom that's kind of the dominant narrative that there is um, and how it yeah. served as legitimacy for the Chinese government. Um, yeah. And then also looking to the future, um, improving the relationships with Europe um, and how China is becoming more aware of its own behavior in an economic sense. Um, but then also also worries of repetition and the narrative of China's past and how it's so much more than just economic competition um, and the creation of, en of enemies and the true danger of AUKUS, uh, framing the relationship of more than just economic issues, but really life and death and truly worrying about a war That's in the Pacific and, and a nuclear war. Um, I really thank you so much um, for giving me and everyone listening or reading um, such a just all-encompassing response. I, I honestly could not have wished for more um, information and background. Thank you so much for meeting with me today. Well, it's fun. It's fun to have this discussion, right? It's time for us to reflect and uh, to think about what, what's the best for the world. And I think it's, it's good. It's a great exercise. I am so happy that you're doing this, Emmy. So that's wonderful. Thank you so much, Professor Vu. And that is the end of that interview. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. Really hope that you enjoyed that kind of different way of going in with the podcast. Big shout out again and a thank you to Amy Look for conducting the interview and for Professor Boo for actually doing the interview. And with all that said, thank you so much for listening to the Queen's International Affairs Association's Right of Reply podcast. You know, Follow us on our socials, yes. Instagram, ROR, not ROR, sorry, Right of Reply, uh, Facebook, we're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Hit, hit up our feedback form. I think we'll post it in the... In the, on the Instagram posts and Facebook posts. And follow The Observer as well. They have some great journalism material that is relevant to Queen's students and international affairs. So if you like the podcast, you definitely like what a lot of a lot of what The Observer has to post as well. So, yeah, and hopefully we'll get some collabs in the future maybe. So Exactly, that would be great. And, and without further ado, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.